Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about living lives that unleash courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and I couldn't be more excited for you to be joining us today. We're kicking off a series entitled Rage, Grief, and Goodness. Each episode in this series will be a conversation between one member of the Foothills staff and a community leader or Unitarian Universalist minister who we've invited to speak at the intersection of these three daily realities for us, rage, grief, and goodness. I can't stop thinking about the conversation you're gonna be listening to today. Foothills Minister Reverend Elaine Aaron Tambrake interviews the Reverend Karen Hutt, a Unitarian Universalist minister who is currently one of the vice presidents of United Theological Seminaries in Minneapolis. Karen is a black chaplain who has spent decades training chaplains in prisons, in hospitals, and really forming a generation of ministers. Speaking from her experience as a black woman in the United States, speaks about the embodiment of rage as the sincere desire for goodness. She challenges us that while people may be good, many of our systems in society don't ever give them a chance to act like it. It's a brilliant conversation, but it's also a challenging one, especially for those of us who are white, to hear about the grief and the realities of the Black experience in this country. But it's also a deeply faithful conversation. We hear Karen speak about her humanist faith and what keeps her going. After the interview, I'm going to guide you through a contemplative practice in which we get in touch with our anger exploring how we can create spaciousness around our anger so that we're able to use it as a source, as a wellspring for action in the world and not a slippery slope to aggression and to violence. So stick around. I'm going to turn it over to Reverend Elaine. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to be with you all. It's been great. I, I remember doing a training with some of you there at Foothills. So it's nice to see everybody or at least feel everybody's presence. Well, I'm so glad you're our guest as we kick off this series thinking about rage, grief, and goodness. And I thought I'd just put those topics out there at the top of our conversation here. And I'm curious, Karen, how do you understand the relationship between rage, grief, and goodness, or just what does that trifecta bring up for you? No easy subject there. Well, you know, it's funny. I thought about this yesterday a little bit, and yesterday is August 28th, I believe, and I couldn't believe all of the things that I had feelings about that had to do with this day. One, it was a anniversary of Katrina today, I guess, in the last 24 hours in 2005. It's the almost the end of a 20-year war, a, fu a futile effort, and with lots of devastation and waste and horror in Afghanistan. It's also a time of COVID. We're in a pandemic. And yesterday was also the anniversary of the voting March on Washington, and another demonstration took place in D.C. yesterday to fight for voting rights. So there's a certain loss in all of those things. And also Emmett Till, a young teenager that was uh, brutally murdered, that kicked off a lot of the civil rights movement in 1955. It's his anniversary, too. So Emmett Till, Katrina, Afghanistan, COVID, and voting rights, loss, 
all of those things leads to grief because I think you can't talk about grief until you talk about loss. That's the first mm -hmm. sort of impetus for it. And grief, this kind of grief of all of these things that are recurring again, Emmett Till, but we see George Floyd, Katrina, now we see Ida, Afghanistan, now we see ISIS again, COVID, people aren't wearing masks, voting rights being turned back. So that leads to rage. So loss and grief and rage, I see a trajectory there. But rage also leads me to have a, a sincere desire for the manifestation of goodness. So I think they're all connected because without rage, rage is, is a desire for goodness, I think, in many ways. I wonder if we could dig into that piece around rage a little more. And I'm just curious, how is rage in your experience, Karen, how's that hooked up to your deepest values? And I wonder if something comes to mind in your life right now that brings up rage that you're dealing with. Well, I'll speak from the personal. The, the personal is political always. And as an African-American, I, I have a particular kind of rage. But I think it was James Baldwin who said, I think his quote was, if I can get it right, says, if, if you are a conscious African-American, a conscious Negro in America, you're in a constant state of rage. Um, but rage cannot be displayed. So it must be managed. And so throughout my history and the DNA of my people, we've always managed our rage in this country in order to be, to, to stay alive. We, we can't be rageful. We can't be angry. It's not acceptable or we will be face consequences for that at work, at home, in the streets, everywhere. But I, I want to share with you something personal. I sent you a little clip of my DNA, where I was from and, uh, and who I am. I'm a product of navigation. I'm a product of exploration. I am an existence that never existed in the world before an African-American. And here's the, the content of my DNA. And as you can see, it's, it's, it's really a mix of things that I never quite believed. But when I first saw this, along with the map that went along with it, I was... Um, I was shocked, curious, lots of things I thought I was, I am not. And this percentage of European and Swedish and Jewish and Irish and Scottish blood in me, it could give me nothing but grief and sadness and rage because I couldn't have gotten that blood without rape and kidnapping and slavery and enslavement. So I think. But at the same time, I'm really kind of proud to be this person that survived this horrid, horrid world catastrophe. I am a creation of, of this mess. I am a creation of capitalism and imperialism and absolute horror. But here I am. I sit with you today speaking English in the United States with all of this in me. So th there's a certain rage that I have about it, but it's also a certain curiosity that um, with my commitments as a humanist, I think I'm able to explore this reality with critical thinking, you know, with certain understanding about ethics, wanting social justice, my commitment to service and participation in the world, not giving up, my commitment to empathy. Because I, I was on the other side of of the ocean. I've been in the 
Uh, I worked at the Field Museum for a while, and I worked in the the pits of these castles that were holding Africans before they were exported to the Americas. And so I've been on the other side of that ocean and looked out and stood in rooms where they looked through little slits to pick out which Africans they wanted because the Europeans didn't want the Africans to see them picking them out. You know, just this this ridiculous story that I'm a product of. I still have a certain commitment to the potential of human goodness, but I know that evil and and uh, certain systems take away goodness and people may be good, but they don't get a chance to demonstrate it because they've been filled with particular ideology. Karen, I wonder what keeps you going in feeling this presence of the human capacity for evil and knowing it's, you know, part of your lineage. It's part of all of our lineages. It's here in the present moment with us. What keeps you moving forward or what, what inspires or energizes you in the midst of that reality? Yeah, that's a tough one. But, you know, I, I think about where I was born. I was born in Philadelphia and I was born next to Constitutional Hall. I was born next door to, in a hospital next door to where the Constitution was formed and down the street from the Liberty Bell. And this is kind of old fashioned and corny, but I, what keeps me going is the sort of the experiment of America as, as fraught with schizophrenia and psychosis as the founders were in creating all people are created equal except you, you know, all of that schizophrenia around what America is. I still, um, that sort of still keeps me going because it is an experiment and, um, experiments take time. And, uh, you know, I, I really value being a part of this experiment. I thought about leaving this country like so many Black Americans, and even in the past few years have left and are living great lives without racial stigma in other parts of the world. And they're just joyous and happy. And I know what that's like living in other places in the world where people don't follow you in stores and treat you like crap every day. But I'm committed. I think that's what keeps me going because my rage, black rage in particular, has always served America well. Because without black rage, we would not have had an end of slavery because we freed ourselves largely. Without black rage, there'd be no civil rights movement. Without black rage, there'd be, I mean, there's almost nothing that moves the country. The country doesn't move forward without black rage, period. Um, and I, I think our black rage is what. As much as a headache it is, it's mostly irritating to have to pay. I call it a black tax every day I go outside. It's a tax I got to pay to just exist in this country. But I, I think it is the hope of America is our rage. And that's what keeps me going. Karen, is there a difference in your personal experience between the rage that you feel as an individual human being and the black rage that you are, are a part of as a collective experience? Well, it's an interesting question. As an individual human being, I have like this really anthropological attitude towards most things. I look at things from a 30,000 foot view and personally, you know, have incorporated my identity with my humanity. So I am comfortable 
in my range. I'm comfortable with it. Humor is a big part of it. If you spend time on YouTube looking at Black comedians, I mean, we we laugh about this all the time. We laugh all the time. We laugh about slavery. We laugh about, I mean, we make jokes about every single thing that particularly white people feel uncomfortable about, but we laugh about it. We laugh about how, well, I wouldn't have been a good slave because, you know, there's a whole litany of of humor about how I wouldn't have been a good slave because it's, they're hilarious. But it has been that, this turning things inside out and upside down, um, taking, it, you know, these weird vantage points on things. I feel as a Black American and as an individual, I've been able to see the world in, in ways that, that others can't. Uh, and as an anthropological humanist, I really do uh, value all of the the craziness of what you know humans are, you know, all the madness, because it's all what we are capable of. So, you know, nothing surprises me. Nothing am I afraid of. You know, I've spent time with white supremacists and taxi cabs. I've prayed over their kids in hospitals. You know, I've I've had some incredible experiences with people that um, probably on most good days would hate me, and I've loved them into being into a new moment. So I really find humanity just incredibly, not only inviting, but entertaining and exciting. So that excitement about human behavior is, it's just, I, I just live for it. That's my spirituality is the, is the great variety of humanity and how it shows up every day and how it can be manipulated, how it can be done for good, for evil. Um, it's just extraordinary. Human beings are extraordinary. I, I, I get no rest from thinking about their potential. You've spent decades of your life serving as a chaplain in multiple contexts, in medical contexts, in prisons, and school settings, and you've been a trainer of chaplains. And I'm really curious about your experience of ministering to people, like, for example, the the example that you just shared, praying over the body of a child of someone who you knew was a white supremacist, mm-hmm. or being with people who were so deeply different from you in their core values and understandings of whose humanity has value. What, what do you bring to those exchanges? How do you show up with authenticity in those spaces? I let go of myself. I, I, let, I take myself almost... Not, not out of the picture. I let go of everything I've ever held on to and just hold on to it loosely so that I can maybe grasp more to something new. I, I don't know any other way of describing it. I, I hold on to everything I know loosely so I can grasp more to something new. And I'll give you one example of that. When I was working in maximum security prisons with men, in Illinois, and this is like Shawshank Redemption, this kind of prison is this like, you know, real school scary prison. But yeah, you know, I remember this one guy I used to visit and he kept going, you know, he would start at the back. I mean, the cell is only so big, but he would like always be in the back. And I say, anything you want to talk to the chaplain about today, brother? It's just always, no, no, no. So I don't look up what people have done, but eventually I did find out what he had done. And every time I kept pursuing him, he kept coming a little closer, 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 because I just would give up on him. And then when I decided 
to not stand on the yellow line that keeps him arm's length away from me from the bars and came right to the bars, um, that's when he came to me because he knew that I was going to treat him like a human being. But this guy had done some horrible things and he had, he had sexually assaulted, you know, dozen women. He was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And a couple people had, a couple of women had died. So he's, he's definitely, you know, it's what we call the worst of the worst. He's this little chubby guy that, you know, just like kind of slouch over middle age at this point. And when he came to the, the front of the cell one day and, and told me about some of the things that he's regretting in his life, and he had really made a lot of changes in his life internally, but he never talked to anybody about it. But he joined a class that I did, and we showed a film in the class about, oh, it was just life, and it was a childbirth scene in the, in the film. And he had never seen childbirth, and he just started crying in the group. And I'm like, what the hell is he crying about? You know, it's like, dude. So chaplains get kind of tough in prison, too. But we went back, and he went back to his cell, and I, I said, you know, man, what, what was that about? He says, I never thought about women giving birth. I've just only seen them as something to use. But I never saw anything like that. And it, it just moved him so deeply. He started writing poetry about he wanted to read about childbirth and how babies grow up because he was abandoned by everybody in his life. He's just lived a horrible life as a child. But, you know, that kind of change, that kind of potential in somebody who was considered the worst of the worst, who's done horrible things, for me to be able to learn to love him was really a big challenge. And, and it was a challenge to my ability to deal with loss and grief of others that have he's harmed, but also the loss and grief of holding on to things that I thought I had to hold on to. I hate you know, these kind of people. That's a terrible human being. I had to let that go. So I couldn't hold on to it real tightly. I had to hold on to it loosely in order to be in relationship with him. I think that's it. That loosely holding experience in order to step into a space with someone who is other in some way and find that new thing. Would you be willing to try to put some more words to that? Well, I think this is the first time I've ever used that loosely hold on to because it just came to me, you know, loosely hold on so that I can be open to for that space in between that space in between holding on to an idea or holding on to a value or a position and then letting it go. And some of that happens to me in these Facebook groups. I was in the Women for Trump, Minnesota Facebook group. I just signed up for it. I have various assumed names. And so I could just interact with these people that I really probably wouldn't interact with normally, but I want to know who they were. I was curiosity is what it does. You let go with curiosity. If you're not curious, then how can you be a human? I just don't see how you can be human without being curious and letting that curiosity overtake you sometime and joy and power and fear and letting all the emotions go along with that curiosity. Fearful, but curious. I'm happy, but curious. You know, everything I do is rooted in curiosity. I want to understand. I want to know. It's, it's cultural humility, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not competent, culturally competent. That's a fraud. But I'm humble. I want to know. So when I was in this room with this this Trump woman, you know, uh, she was going, she was typing in the chat about her husband and some drama she's going through. And so I ministered to her. I mean, I talked her through some stuff and asked her some questions. I mean, I was being a chaplain in this group. And she had said some horrific things 
in this group QAnon stuff and all. But you know, I said, well, let me let me just extend myself. It's not going to kill me to just write four or five sentences that maybe can help her think through this situation because I think she was being abused by her husband. So that mattered to me. It mattered to me. I don't know her. She doesn't know me, but it mattered to me to make that connection because I was curious and I gave a shit. And we need to wrap up our conversation and we'll let this go over. I apologize to our people. This is just too good. But, you know, thank you, Karen, for sharing your experiences. So being so real and so honest with us. And I'm grateful that we're ending on this note of humility and curiosity. And how can we be human without being curious? That is some humanist theological gold right there. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. How can we? I think I'll write about that someday. Maybe yeah. that's a sermon I'll put together. Okay. That I'll come back good. and give you that sermon. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I'm so touched by that. Thank you, Karen. How do I love those who hate me? Reverend Karen's response. I hold on to everything I know about myself loosely. I let go of myself so that I can grasp on something new. This isn't easy for any of us. It takes practice. It's one of the things I admire about Karen as she talks about the places, the Facebook groups, the conversations she gets in with people that she doesn't agree with. She probably doesn't even think, want to understand her, and yet she is curious. She wonders about them, wonders what might emerge if she would enter into a compassionate exchange between the two of them. There is so much goodness for our souls to chew on from this conversation. That's why we've created an online space for our deeper community to reflect together. Deeper Online is a private social network space where we invite intentional, curious, and deep discussion about what we've heard. If you're not a member of Deeper Online, you can join at tinyurl.com deeperuu. Having a place like Deeper Online allows us to practice with each other doing the important but difficult work of answering the call of love, discerning what that means, and never truly feeling alone. That's tinyurl.com slash deeper uu. The good news is we don't need to start in a prison or in a Trump, Women for Trump Facebook group to get practice in letting go of ourselves and getting in touch with what is important. And so I'm going to offer this I'm going to offer this practice that allows us to get in touch with our anger and allows us to see it as a teacher and as pointing towards healing. All right. I'm going to invite us into a time of century of meditation or prayer. I'm going to invite you to find a comfortable position that allows your body to feel relaxed, not floppy, not tense, just that relaxed state of being. We're going to be exploring in this series the concepts of rage, grief, and goodness. And so we thought we'd begin this time exploring a, a feeling and emotion that's close to rage, which is anger. Now, here are a place in which spending some time dwelling on or exploring anger doesn't feel like the right choice for you this morning, I invite you to maybe hit mute or turn off your seekers for about five or six minutes and just enjoy some quiet space. I trust you to make the right choice for you and your space. 
if you're willing to go on a little journey of understanding our anger, it's, it's, it's a work that we need to do collectively. So I invite you to take a breath and exhale, finding a rhythm, getting mad or feeling anger is sometimes a dangerous feeling. But here in this space together, we affirm that all feelings are okay. Now, all behaviors are, of course, not, but all feelings are even anger. And so this morning, if you bring anger with you, that is okay. It is okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry with yourself, with the world. It is okay to feel anger rise up within you as you think about what has happened or what might. Anger is a part of this human experience and it is welcome here. Lama Rod Owen says that anger is the mental and physical tension of having an emotional wound but not having figured out the right self-care strategy to tend to its healing. It is in the gap between the wound and feeling secure in our self-care that anger takes root. At the heart of anger is a wound. At the heart of anger is the desire to be healed, but a tension, a confusion about how to go about that healing. It's okay to feel hurt and not know how to make it right or how to heal. It's actually pretty human, isn't it? And so today we're going to practice dwelling in that tension, the stuff that forms our anger, searching for a spaciousness to learn from it and about it. For as Viktor Franco writes, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Which means we will have to touch our anger, which can be scary and is definitely uncomfortable. But today, I'm going to invite you just to touch it, not to go deep and dive into it, but simply to touch it and to notice that for we're just practicing together. So take a breath and ask yourself, where does anger live in my life right now? Where does anger live in my life right now? Where does it live in my body? Where does anger, where has it found its home in our life? Where does anger live in your life right now? There's a lot to be angry about in this world. A lot of wounds, a lot of sadnesses, a lot of places that need healing. I'm going to invite you to 
pretend that this anger you're experiencing is an object. Imagine it being an object. You can pick whatever object makes sense. And when you have that object, I want you to place it in the center of a large, spacious room. This room is so big. There's nothing else in this room but this one object. It's like a really large gallery. And the only thing in this big room is you and this object. Now you can be as far away as you need to be. You don't need to be up close. You can be really far away. And as you stand or sit in the proximity of this object, which is this anger that you have, what do you notice? What do you notice about your body's response to being close to this object? What thoughts arrive in your mind as you look at this object? What hurt is behind the anger that you feel? What part of life that you have a passion for is connected to this anger that you hold? As you dwell in the proximity of your anger, notice the spaciousness that you have. You don't need to go up close. You're simply in its presence. Notice it. You don't have to react or do anything. Just simply sit and allow it to teach you something about its roots. If you're feeling moved, I invite you to share something you noticed about the anger when you stood in its proximity, maybe about the hurt that was connected, the place that dwelled, or that passion for life that it kindled. That there's maybe fear, that it feels like a magnet, that it might be smaller than we thought, that it's not essential, that it's about fear and loss and regret, grief for innocence, that I feel powerless to help, that maybe it's a frustration with a wound that won't heal. There's a discomfort around unpredictable, unkind people, that I want a blanket, that I fear aloneness, that there's nothing that I can do about it. Invite us to return to our breath, breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be inviting the Reverend Elizabeth Nguyen to speak about her experience as an immigrant justice advocate, as a Vietnamese American, and how she finds herself at the intersection between rage, grief, and goodness. 
Now, if you don't already support our work here at Foothills Unitarian Church, we invite you to. Making a contribution, a recurring donation, allows us to keep providing these sorts of messages that allow us to go deeper into our lives and unleash courageous love, not just in Northern Colorado, but far, far beyond. Your donation will make it possible for us to continue to provide this sort of discourse, which is exactly what our world needs right now. Thanks for listening. And I'll leave you with this exchange that happened during our question and answer period with Karen. Karen, would you be willing to share your experience of not feeling safe to express rage? Not feeling safe. I don't know if I understand that question completely. Mm. I wonder um, if it's a reference to having to manage rage and anger on a oh, daily basis. Yeah, yeah. I, I have humorous ways of doing that. All, all black people do. We all figure it out because there's a lot for us. I mean, if you talk about rage, you wonder why there are fewer, you know, very few black people are, are school shooters and mass murderers. You know, we, we interpersonal, yes, but the, that mass shooting kind of thing. Think about the rage that we have inside of us, the things we observe and still keep it together. It's a survival skill. So we learn as children. My great grandfather was born right after the emancipation. He says that the emancipation was a coffee break, but you have to always be on alert for when the coffee breaks over. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was my lesson from the time I was a witty bitty baby. And I'm teaching my little six-year-old that now, too. She's starting to learn about how she's going to be navigating in the world as a black person, as a brown person. Mm -hmm. So it's managed. You know, we, we just, it's in my, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just something we know how to do. And we have cues for one another when we see each other. If you ever see black people recognize each other and they do the nod, like you're with a black friend, and you walk down the street and they see another black friend, they do the nod, they're like, what's up? You know, that's just to say, are you okay? I see you, we okay. It's like a beautiful thing. I don't even know how to describe it. It's one of the most best things about being black is the nod, you know, you can, you can do that to have affirmation of security and safety. Mm -hmm. So we get it in all kinds of ways.